0: Russia says it's won the race to develop a new coronavirus vaccine, and sure, Jan, a dramatic reboot of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air could be heading to streaming. And we've got former deputy national security advisor and host of the new podcast, Missing America, Ben Rhodes, on with us today.
1: The date, August 11th, 2020.
0: The time, News O'Clock. Hey everyone, I'm Hayes Brown.
1: And I'm Casey Rackham. Welcome to BuzzFeed's News O'Clock.
0: Okay, Casey, before we get to actually important things, we have to really <laughs> quickly discuss the Smash, ba- no. smash hit Band, Smash Aww. Mouth, and the fact that they are in the news right now.
1: Because of course they are. Of course they are. Hayes. 2020
0: won't stop 2020 ing. So, yeah, they were at a biker. Rally convention mm-hmm, deal mm-hmm. in Sturgis, South Dakota on Sunday. And they performed there. And uh, to quote their front man, Steve Harwell, we're all here together tonight. Fuck that COVID shit.
1: What, what a quote. Straight and to the point. And
0: not the quote you want. <laughs> it's a sentiment I, we can get behind. Yeah, fuck that COVID shit. But right. this was at a place where no one was really wearing a mask. There wasn't a lot of social distancing. And do you really want your last experience before contracting the coronavirus to be, yeah, I was at the Smash Mouth show and just, that was it for me, man.
1: Unless it is a Shrek tribute concert,
0: mm. no. <laughs> I think that even in that case, I'd still pass on it, but good to know where your standards are right now, Casey. Okay, time for today's top stories. Here's what you need to know. Russia claims to develop a coronavirus vaccine that can be used by the general population, to which I respond... Russia says a lot of things. Russian President Vladimir Putin made the announcement today that the drug, which will be called Sputnik V, has been approved for widespread use. Bloomberg News reports that the Russian elite has apparently been taking this drug since April. A major, major caveat, though, Sputnik V has not gone through a complete set of clinical trials, leaving a lot of questions about how effective it actually is. Crucially, it hasn't gone through what's called Phase 3 testing, which is a months-long study that administers a new trial drug to thousands of patients. And just yesterday, Russian pharmaceutical company sent a letter to the Russian Ministry of Health warning about the danger a new, untested drug could prompt. Wildly enough, Putin claims that his own daughter has taken the vaccine as proof that it's effective and he's already got potential buyers. Even before Putin's announcement today, President Rodrigo Duterte of the Philippines said that he wanted in on this drug, saying that he'd take it live on camera to prove to his country how safe it is. Meanwhile, millions of people are in Facebook groups related to QAnon, NBC reports, underpinning just how much work the company would have to do to rein it in. Facebook has been conducting an internal investigation into how the conspiracy theory has spread on the platform, according to documents provided NBC. Preliminary results show that the top 10 QAnon groups have a collective 1 million members. Add in other groups and you're approaching 3 million. And Facebook knows they're a problem. When responding to a query from NBC News, a spokesperson for Facebook, quote, asked not to be named for fear of harassment from the QAnon community. It's not clear how much overlap there is between the members and the groups, but it's still troubling given how widespread the group's memes can be now. For those of you who don't remember, QAnon is a web of theories at this point, which boils down to President Trump fighting against the so-called deep state, which is made up mostly of pedophiles and Satanists who want to hurt America. This revelation was first provided by an anonymous figure called Q on the toxic internet wasteland known as 4chan. The group's messaging has begun turning up in ways that most people wouldn't realize on platforms like Instagram, which is also owned by Facebook. That includes a recent wild theory that the company Wayfair is secretly trafficking children, which spread among Instagram's influencers, and a recent hashtag, #SaveTheChildren that Facebook eventually blocked. And finally, Seattle's police chief said she will resign after the city reduced the force's budget, the latest back and forth over policing since the George Floyd protest began in late May. Police Chief Carmen Best announced her pending resignation on Monday night after Seattle City Council approved a plan that would, if enacted annually, cut the police's funding by 41 percent. Among other things, the new budget would reduce the police force by about 100 officers. It would eliminate the city's horseback patrols, cut out cops from schools, and reduce funding to the department's SWAT team. A previous proposal would have also slashed the chief's salary, but was abandoned in the final legislation. Chief Best was the first Black woman to hold the post in Seattle and will step down as of September 2nd. It's one of the most successful of the attempts to cut funding to police forces around the country, a major demand from Black Lives Matter demonstrators in recent months. For comparison, in places like Los Angeles, that may take longer than activists would like to see. The LA Times reported today that the city has cut the police department's budget by $150 million this year. Those reductions still leave the police budget at about $3 billion, close to the same as last year. At that rate, the Times calculates it'll be about 20 years before the calls to defund the police would actually be met in L.A.
1: So I'm a little bit confused. What were the reasons given that Chief Best is stepping down?
0: She says that she wants to step down because she feels like someone else could have a better shot at having good working relationship with Seattle City Council, but and she's tried her best not to link it directly to these cuts. But the fact that she is stepping down right after this does send a pretty clear signal that she's not happy about it. She had wanted about a twenty percent reduction in uh, the police uh, forces budget, but the call was for fifty percent, and the council did its best to actually get to that number. So also, I'm uh, jumping back to that Facebook thing. Uh, it is really wild and troubling to me personally just how much QAnon's messaging has spread. Like the other day I had to correct a former coworker uh on Instagram who had posted to her Insta story uh, about like uh, the Save the Children hashtag that someone had posted and it's like no no please take this down this is not what you think it is. Oof. Okay, Casey, what's on your docket today?
1: Well, first up, actor Lakeith Stanfield confirmed today that he's okay after his posts on Instagram got people extremely concerned. You may know Stanfield from his both intense and spacey roles on the TV show Atlanta or the movies Knives Out and Sorry to Bother You, but Newsweek quoted a now-deleted Instagram video of his from last night where he said, quote, I like to be by myself because I can hurt myself and no one tells me to stop or fakes like they care. That and other posts were worrying enough that comedian Patton Oswalt asked his Twitter followers if anyone could check in on him. Oswalt wrote, quote, I have no way to contact Lakeith Stanfield directly. I've reached out to some friends we have in common, but can someone on here who knows him please reach out to him? Thankfully, Stanfield is apparently fine. Early this morning, he deleted his posts and replaced them with one that reads, I'm okay, everyone. I appreciate everyone checking in on me, but I'm good. I'm not harming myself. Much love. Oswald also said he'd gotten confirmation that Stanfield was okay and recommended that people message someone they haven't talked to in a while to check in and share a good memory.
0: A, good advice. B, what a relief. I feel like we have all been there yes. in terms of someone that you know kind of posting something worrying on social media and being like, uh, can someone please look at this, please? What is happening here?
1: You know, and, and it's one of these things where like some people, you know, like even Patton Oswalt, when he posted about it, it was like there was hesitancy there. It was like, the, the, he might totally be fine. This might be an art thing. This might be just an Instagram post, nothing to read into. But- if there's that 1% chance that something isn't right, you know, uh, Patton Oswalt took that moment to be like, hey, let's just make sure he's okay. And a lot of other people felt that way too. Um, so yes, thankfully he's okay.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, as everyone, we talk about like serious weighty issues like this, just going to throw out the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That is 1-800-273-8255. Again, one 800 273 8255 that's the national suicide prevention lifeline and if you feel the need to use it don't hesitate do so
1: and moving on in other news the hollywood reporter says that a reboot of the fresh prince of bel-air is being shopped around the new series would be a drama this time around and it would be based on a trailer that was put together by director and fresh prince superfan morgan cooper last year that went viral
2: will needs discipline
1: just a little time just a little
2: time and a little love we are what he needs why don't you go back to philly born and raised right you think i would ever want to be in this life you're not welcome will this is fake wherever you're from this is fake you didn't do anything to earn this i never had nothing
1: That trailer caught original Fresh Prince Will Smith's attention, and the two have decided to make it real. According to The Hollywood Reporter, Cooper would co-write the script, direct, and be credited as co-EP if it's picked up to go into production. Right now, the project is still in early development, but is being bid on by a few different places, including Netflix, NBC's Peacock streaming service, and HBO Max. The original show is currently streaming on HBO Max, but Peacock could be fitting, considering the original show aired all six seasons on NBC.
0: You know what? I'm pretty here for this. I I saw that trailer last year. It's like, this is really good. It has no right to be as good as it is.
1: I know. It's super good. And it makes you really see that a drama would work for the show, which makes sense. The Fresh Prince had a lot of real moments in that show. And it's like, yes, it, it, was, it was a sitcom. It was a funny show. But there were tons of heartfelt moments um, with that family. So, and I'm excited. You know, like a lot of people are like, you know, like, I don't want a reboot. I want like a brand new show which I'm in agreement of. I want new voices and everything. But this falls into the category of new voices to me.
0: That's a really good point. I, I'm really curious to see what whoever picks it up does with it. And I, I know reboots are really big, in, especially NBC shows. I learned today that Saved by the Bell is doing a reboot on NBC's Peacock with uh, Mario Lopez and Elizabeth Berkley. <laughs>
1: yep. Yep, it's happening. I, I don't know how I
0: feel about that one yet. I'm, I, I'm curious based on the trailer, but I'm definitely way more excited about The Fresh Prince. Oh,
1: me too. I want to see what that would look like. So I hope it happens. After the break, we're talking with Pod Save the World's Ben Rhodes about what America's role in the world even looks like moving forward. Be right back.
2: From Cavalry Audio comes the new true crime podcast, The Shadow Girls. I always wanted to know what it
1: felt like to kill somebody. (laughs) He started laughing. Prosecutors described him as a serial killer savant.
2: Picking up these girls, getting them in a position of vulnerability, when he got a hold of their neck, that was it. I'm Carolyn Osorio, a journalist and lifelong resident of the Pacific Northwest. I grew up near the banks of the Green River, and in the shadow of the killer that bears its name. How many times did you bring the camera to One the river? time. Just one time? One
1: time. He started fantasizing about having sex with his mother. Then he fantasized about killing her.
2: But this podcast isn't only about tracking down the killer. It's about the victims.
1: We stayed in the woods. He always liked to go in the woods. It was just,
2: to all of us, kind of strange you know how he feels about prostitutes listen to the shadow girls on the iHeartRadio radio app on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts the
0: gangster chronicles podcast is a weekly conversation that revolves around the underworld from criminals and entertainers to victims of crime and law enforcement we cover all facets of the game gangster chronicles podcast doesn't glorify or promote illicit activities we just discussed the ramifications and repercussions of these activities. Because after all, if you play gangster games, you are ultimately rewarded with gangster prizes. iHeartRadio is number one for podcasts, but don't take our word for it. Find the Gangster Chronicles podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome back. It's been almost four years since President Trump took office with his pledge to put America first. Since then, we've seen the U.S. withdraw from international organizations, antagonize allies, get into a trade war with China. And well, the list goes on and
0: on. To talk about what that's meant for the U.S.'s standing in the world and what might change after the November election, we're joined by Ben Rhodes. He's a former deputy national security advisor under President Obama, a co-host of Crooked Media's Pod Save the World, and the host of the new podcast miniseries, Missing America. Thank you for joining us, Ben. Good to be with you guys. So from getting some of the biggest secrets in the world coming across your desk to podcast host, how does it feel to be down here
2: with us plebs these last four years? It, you know what? Actually, it feels better than you think because you can say exactly what you think on a podcast, mm. which is not always the case when you are <laughs> the Deputy National Security Advisor. So I've enjoyed that part of it.
1: So you've been co-host of Pod Save the World for years now. How do you and your co-host, Tommy Veter, sort through all of the world's news each week to come up with what matters most?
2: Well, you know, I think what we found, right, is that people want a bit of a blend. So there's always the two or three things that Trump did this week that, that, you know, people are outraged about or people don't understand and they want to hear people vent their feelings about it. But I think what's also interesting is there's an audience out there for people who are just trying to make sense of what's happening around the world. Um, and they want some off the beaten path topics. They want to know what the hell is going on in Belarus or Hong Kong. They're seeing these things happening in other places that seem important, but also feel like a reflection of what's happening here. It's a lot of the same stuff everywhere. It's the spread of nationalism. It's the spread of authoritarianism. It's the spread of disinformation. And so I think what we found on our show and what I try to do in this new podcast is show people that the same stuff that we're dealing with in the United States is happening everywhere. And, you know, at a certain point, you lose track of when we are reflecting what's happening in other places around the world or when what we're doing is spreading these viruses around the world. And and so that's what we've tried to do each week. and, And that's what I tried to take a step back and do on this new pod.
1: Mm. Is there a favorite episode of yours that you've done so far?
2: That's a really good question. You know, actually, for me, I ended up looking at at the issue of sectarianism in India, um, which is, again, not always the country that is front and center in our foreign policy discussion. But what has happened under Narendra Modi, particularly in the last year, and essentially turning that country into a Hindu nationalist state and increasingly authoritarian system, you know, has very eerie echoes of what's happened here. I mean, one of the signature moves that Modi's undertaken is essentially a Muslim ban where people can't emigrate to India if they come from Muslim-majority countries. And you see a lot of the same kind of right-wing mobilization, use of social media and disinformation, attacking any independent media. And going through that experience of India was striking to me because what I found is that the right the far right, has been organized for a long time in India. This has not just happened overnight. This has been building for you know over a decade in the same way that I think what's happened here under Trump did not just appear out of nowhere with Trump. It's been building. And what was also interesting in talking to Indians and Americans about this is the irony of that kind of symbiotic relationship between the right wing and both countries, because in the 20th century. It was the American civil rights movement that was symbiotic with Gandhi's movement of nonviolence. King drew a very direct line to Gandhi. And so part of what I I found and discovered in that episode, and frankly, in the series generally, is that the far right has been very organized and coordinated around the world And, and that, frankly, the solutions to that lie maybe even less in foreign policy than they lie in the capacity of progressives to similarly coordinate and mobilize around the world.
0: In your new podcast, Missing America, you're taking a look at what President Trump's America First policy has meant for the rest of the world. What would you say, though, is the biggest tangible impact of that policy so far?
2: I think that the the collective impact beyond any one policy, because people always say to me, Ben, you know, how does it feel to see you know the Iran deal and the Paris Accord and the cube opening you know, undone, and you know, it it, it sucks, you know. But uh, the 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 bigger thing that I noticed traveling a lot that I think Americans don't fully appreciate is that our kind of our standing in the world has collapsed. It, 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 you know, this is not a subject of debate in other countries. They don't look to the United States really for anything anymore, uh, for any kind of leadership. And that has opened up a massive vacuum around the world that has been taken advantage of by all manner of forces, by principally China in terms of geopolitical influence, but also by nationalists in Europe, by nationalists like Narendra Modi in India, by people who feel that there's no rule book anymore to how the world operates. And this isn't just about, you know, the international order, the U.S.-led international order unraveling. It's also just about the norms inside of countries uh, evaporating. Um, And so I think Americans don't fully uh, understand it's not one policy that Trump has undertaken. It's that because the United States took the 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 action of electing Trump. You know, it's not the fact of Trump being president. It's the fact that we elected Trump. That has dealt a body blow to our standing, even if Trump hasn't done anything on the order of like the Iraq war. And it's going to take essentially rebuilding from scratch to reestablish any form of American leadership, moral or practical around the world.
1: So there are limits, though, to what the U.S. can do. As you saw in your time in the White House, you mentioned Hong Kong, where China is detaining journalists and going through textbooks to scrap secessionist thought under its new national security law. Is there really that much the U.S. would be able to do to change that right now, even if Trump wasn't president?
2: I think in the in the immediate term, there's very little that we could do. And I talked to a bunch of Hong Kong protesters for this podcast, and there's an episode that basically tells the story of Hong Kong. And, you know, what is so striking there is that, first of all, what they'll tell you is what's happened in Hong Kong is not just an attack on their civil liberties. It's an attack on their very identity, you know, that they feel a sense of independent Hong Kong identity that is basically being eradicated, not just because of their rights and liberties, but their school curriculum is being changed. You know, the the basic expectations of what citizens can say and do is changing, And to me, the most important thing the United States needs to do is not any one sanction against Chinese or Hong Kong officials. It's setting a different example, (laughs) setting an, you know, the Chinese have been setting an example for some time now, that is trying to communicate to the world that our model is better. Authoritarianism, this kind of authoritarian capitalism, this techno-totalitarianism is the future and American democracy is the past. And they've got pretty good evidence to point at our dysfunction and say, look at these guys. You don't want to end up like the Americans with Trump. Uh, That's actually not what the people of Hong Kong want. But they're, they're, they're running against the wind here. They're, they're swimming against the tide, to use two metaphors, because there is no democratic example in the world. And so what I think America needs to do is, number one, get our house in order and show that democracy can work and show that we're going to reinvest in democratic reforms in the United States to once again at least have the foundation of an example. And then I think be much more aggressive than we were in the Obama administration at organizing like-minded democracies around the world, if you added up the collective voice of the United States and Europe and our allies in Asia and other places, that's still a lot of weight that we can carry around the world. And frankly, we haven't done enough to use it and to speak out on issues like Hong Kong, uh, you know, to show that we're on the side of what people want. Because the people in Hong Kong, they're literally the only, the reason that matters so much is they're the only people in the world who felt like they could opt into the Chinese system or try to opt out. And they did not want to opt in. So it puts the lie to the notion that everybody just wants to live in this kind of techno-totalitarian capitalist society. You know, We need to, to get aggressive in our own model and working with others uh, to, to push back against the authoritarian tide.
1: So former Vice President Biden, no secret that you're a supporter. If he wins this November, what do you think is the biggest thing that he'll do differently from your old boss, President Obama, in terms of foreign policy?
2: I think that you know, what we were just talking about, you know, we we came to office after the financial crisis and that was our overriding concern. Uh, and frankly, you know, that meant that we, you know, with respect to human rights in China, we were working with China to resolve a global financial crisis and then get them in the Paris Accord. But I, I think on these issues of democracy, I think a Biden administration should be much more aggressive and unabashed in in promoting democracy. And when I say that, I do not mean the traditional, I think, Washington approach, which is, you know, give grants to civil society organizations. I think, number one, it means democracy promotion in the United States. So this may not seem like a foreign policy issue, but it is. We need to show that everybody in this country can vote. We need to show that everybody in this country is represented. We need to show that we're going to put an end to the insane drawing of congressional districts, the, money, the role of money in politics. This may seem like it's not a foreign policy issue. It is because other countries have copied what the Republican Party has done here. <laughs> Victor Orban, uh, the arch-nationalist authoritarian in Europe, redistricting is how that man stays in office, right? He, you know, campaign finance is, is how he essentially enriches cronies who invest in him. So I think a, a broad democratic reform package, it doubts of the Biden administration to kind of reset our own democracy, and then again, taking this on offense and, and, and focusing on issues like corruption, right? What, what is the, the, the trillion dollars in illicit money that flows around the world? That's what funds Russian interference. That's what funds all these nationalists and authoritarians who sit on top of corrupt systems like Lukashenko that we're just seeing in, in Belarus. If you can take aim at that, and, and organize the U.S. and Europe you know, to be at the forefront of that, I think you can begin to make headway in pushing back against this tide of nationalism and authoritarianism, which is not in our interest because, frankly, a world of nationalist autocrats makes cooperation impossible. And we, we've lived through that in COVID. The reason the COVID response is so bad globally is because this collection of leaders cannot work together. So you need to make sure that you're trying to get different leaders in, in, in place.
0: So one of the most interesting ways that President Trump has tried to use U.S. influence abroad that follows up on the Obama administration is using economic sanctions as a major foreign policy tool. What do you think? Has the U.S. gotten too crazy about sanctions? And should a President Biden roll some of those back unilaterally?
2: Yes, and, and I, you know two things. Sanctions, I think, and I already felt by the end of the Obama years, were a dramatically overused tool of American foreign policy. They were, they, uh, you know, they can have an impact, a targeted impact at times, but it started to become the thing that you just do because you want to show that you care about something. And sometimes it was an executive action, but a lot of times it was Congress, too. What the sanctions end up doing is they end up hurting people in countries and not necessarily changing the behavior of governments. And they undermine confidence in the U.S. as a global leader, because countries are tired of us going around the world sanctioning everybody. So I think you do need to try to unwind some of the overuse of sanctions around the world. The the other thing I should just add and what to do differently is, you know, we were still pretty close to 9-11, right, in in 2009. And we couldn't really put a definitive end to that error. And the sanctions are part of that, right? All the, the sanctions on Iran that pile up and pile up and pile up and have no positive impact essentially on what we're trying to do is is part of that post 9/11 mindset i i'd like to see a biden presidency more definitively and not just overuse of sanctions but this kind of 9/11 period where everything that america does in the world is kind of hyper securitized and that can lead you from a, a, anywhere to sanctioning you know <laughs> dozens of countries to you know getting into a, a collection of wars in the middle east that haven't turned out well
0: okay so last question if biden wins do You go back to government, or are you sticking with podcasting? I'm
2: pretty happy podcasting. I, I will <laughs> tell you, I uh, I also have a three and a five year old. Which it's funny. I I uh, if you look at government, there's tends to be people like who are young and they're like 20s and 30s, and then people in their like 50s and 60s. And I always wondered about that gap. And <laughs> it really is kids. So I'm not I'm not one of these people who's like jonesing to get back in the government. Um, you know, someday I'd like to get back in the government. But but I, I'd be happy podcasting for a little while. I'll put it that way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thanks, guys. It was great. All right. It's time for
0: Meanwhile on the Internet. And today we have to talk about Phil Collins.
1: <laughs> yes, I've been wanting to talk about these teens.
0: Right? Okay, so okay. So, listeners, uh, you all know Phil Collins' classic hit, In the Air Tonight. Yeah, it's one of those songs where even if you don't know it, you know it. Especially for this drum breakdown and beat drop.
1: Yes, whether you've loved the song for years or just really appreciate the memes that use that clip, it's iconic. And so, twins Tim and Fred Williams from Gary, Indiana, recorded their reaction to hearing it for the first time for their YouTube channel, Twins: The New Trend, and it is honestly perfect. You already said, felt like I'm sleeping on. Me. Let's wake let them up. up. Come on, you ain't hey, killed that was that, cold. Hey, that was cool. I gotta download this to my that phone. That was cool how you did do it, I ain't gonna lie, You got me on that. I ain't never seen nobody drop, drop a beat like three that. minutes in a song. <laughs>
0: Apparently, that video was so popular, so powerful, that it spawned a real resurgence of appreciation for Collins. According to Yahoo News, In the Air Tonight has become a sales hit again on iTunes, where it spent yesterday as the number three spot right behind WAP and Darius Rucker's new release, Beers and Sunshine. And uh, last week, it was the number four in sales for the week on iTunes. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and all the memes are so good. They're so
0: good. I will watch any single video on Twitter that includes that moment from In the Air tonight. And they're all amazing. There's one with a deer stumbling on a kid's playground. That's perfect. Because all of them, if you haven't watched them, uh, they all take that drum beat drop and replace it with the sound of someone like stumbling over something in real life. And mm. they all the timing that's necessary for these edits. <clears throat> Chef's kiss. <laughs> Did you grow up with Phil Collins? Do you know who he was like really deeply? D- I mean, Tarzan? <laughs> exactly. Same. I didn't I was worried about admitting it, but I knew no. Phil Collins first from Tarzan that, that and the Tarzan soundtrack.
1: Beautiful, iconic, wonderful.
0: <laughs> People my- don't appreciate it enough to be honest.
1: <laughs> no, my um my uh boyfriend and I were talking about it the other night because we were playing um Mario Party and he was Diddy Kong and I was Daisy <laughs> and who we've decided Daisy is bi so that's why I pick her anyways perfect um, love it anyway it was fun seeing Daisy and Diddy Kong together we were like it's Tarzan (laughs) (laughs) also did you know did you know I mean it makes sense but actor Lily Collins her dad that's her dad
0: I did not know that but it all tracks don't it wow okay okay I see this I see this well congrats to Phil Collins shout out to you for having a smash hit 39 years later (laughs)
1: That's it for today. Join us tomorrow for another dose of uplifting news and other promises we can't keep.
0: And remember, if Phil Collins can have a top-selling song 39 years after it comes out, imagine what kind of dope shit we'll be waiting for you 39 years from now.
1: Be sure to subscribe to News O'Clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you go for your
0: sound stories. And please take the time to leave us a rating and a review. Help us figure out what you like about the show versus what you love about the show. And remember to set your alarm so you never miss an
2: episode of Music Clock. Hi, I'm Randy and this is Dave. We're the founders of Bombas, the
0: most comfortable socks in the history of feet.
2: So comfortable, we sold and donated millions of pairs.
0: To sell and donate a lot of socks, we became obsessed with comfort.
2: We reinvented the sock from the ground up, adding comfort innovations along the way. It worked. People tried them, loved them, told their friends about them. Helping us sell and donate millions of pairs. Try them now at bombas.com slash comfy and get 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot
1: com slash comfy.
2: Rafi is the voice of some of the happiest songs of our generation. Baby beluga, so, who is the man behind Baby Beluga? Every human being wants to feel respected. When we start with young children, all good things can grow from there. I'm Chris Garcia, comedian, new dad, and host of Finding Rafi, a new podcast from iHeartRadio and Fatherly. Listen every Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I'm Paris Hilton, and this is Trapped in Treatment, a weekly podcast of shocking survivor experiences and stories from an industry plagued by controversy. With my hosts, Caroline Cole and Rebecca Mellinger, we will uncover the truth of one teen treatment facility each season. First up, Provo Canyon School. This one is personal. Listen to Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.